Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. This episode contains TFOS 1164 to TFOS 1177, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1164. Story number one. Stellar Wonder, written by Arclight Magus. Yitz still didn't understand the ship's human. She was prone to wandering off after shift and uh, doing activities that were not obviously productive. Feeding and rest periods were quite understandable by Yitz's learning, but she spent hours with her terminal, creating cacophonous cells which had been explained as external expression of internal hormone balancing described in the human guide of emotion as joy. Following one shift, Yitz was completing one feeding cycle and noted the ship's human wasn't there. Yitz thought back to the events involving the pirates and the ship's human, namesake Victoria, and reviewed a number of internal queries Yitz had regularly reviewed following the incident. She had not expressed any aggression against the ship's crew, including Yitz, but appeared capable of great violence, like the class warrior. Yitz discerned by recursion and deductive logic that a solution method for better understanding would be to query Victoria. Yitz queried the ship's computer for namesake Victoria, query location and ship self. The ship responded with a namesake Victoria, species human, class engineer, current location, ship self, holographic suite 3. Yitz knew the holographic suites. The suites were commonly used for visual diagnosis of issues or review of scouting records. But Hyatz didn't use the suites. Hyatz was not trained to use the suites, and Hyatz was uncertain why Victoria would use one. Hyatz went to Holographic Suite 3 and prompted the computer to allow entry. Upon the door opening, Hyatz was utterly stunned. Inside the Holographic Suite 3 appeared a vast field of black with points of white dotted irregularly around the space. However, seeing anything beyond the vast empty blackness and the slowly drifting points of light was impossible for Yitz. Except, except the light of the corridor in which Yitz stood shone in enough light to gently and barely illuminate the reclining figure of Victoria. She sat up and looked at Yitz with a facial expression, puzzlement. Something wrong, Yitz? Victoria questioned. Not an act of tasking. Query. Why is Victoria using holographic suites? Yitz managed. Yitz's visual senses, reading lost at looking into what Yitz knew was a 5 meter by 5 meter by 5 meter space, but fully appeared to be the external to the ship and experienced a curious sense of scale. I am looking through the stellar cartography logs. Your people have been in space a lot longer than mine have, Victoria said, still sitting up. Answer understood and processed. Query. Why is Victoria reviewing stellar cartography logs when Victoria is class engineer? Hayitz prompted, still rooted in place in the corridor. I wasn't always an engineer, and it helps me put it all into perspective, Victoria replied. And before Hayitz could respond, she had stood, moved to Hayitz across the void of space, grasped one forelimb of Hayitz, and applied motion direction to direct Hayitz to follow her back into the gaping void. Had Victoria been truthfully forceful, Hyatz had no doubts that Victoria could have vigorously commanded by physical input Hyatz into the space. However, Hyatz relied on Victoria and understood the prompted direction. Despite Hyatz's misgivings about the visually apparent space, 
Hyatt was led into the blackness away from the safety of the corridor. Behind Hyatt, the door on the corridor would shut and appeared to vanish into the inky blackness that wrapped the whole room. Hyatt felt awash with many nervous system chemicals and was on the verge of entering a non-threatening posture when Victoria spoke to Hyatt. Hyatt, my people were alone for so long. We didn't know how to grow beyond our small space, and so we were very different from the Harai Mirror, Victoria said calmly, looking directly at Hyatt's. Hyatt's, having not heard the formal name of Hyatt's species in several ship cycles, was a bit confused by the statement. If Hyatt's confusion was evident, Victoria showed no evidence of heeding it. My people have a saying that you have to put everything into perspective, so I like to just see how big it all is and to try to understand it, and sometimes even just to wonder. Victoria continued, breaking eye contact with Hyatt's to look around the vast blackness with interspersed points of light. Computer, stellar cartographic record 41752, center of point 1337-2019C, scale 40.1 light years, enhanced object lighting. The space around Hyatt's blurred with points of light speeding through the room until it settled again on a myriad of lights surrounding them at all lone point between the two of them. This is my, humanity's home system, Hyatt's, Victoria said, appearing to cradle the small point of light between them. Hyatt's mind was spinning, struggling to keep up with the entirety of the experience. Hyatt's could only nod. A human gesture Hyatt's had learned from the human guide from the several weeks with Victoria. A single motion from Victoria, the point of light grew almost in an explosion of light and color. Reflexively, Hyatt's moved to a safe position. After a moment or two, Victoria pressed on Hyatt's, indicating that Hyatt's was safe despite the light show. All around Hyatt's and Victoria was a solar system, a brilliant sun shone off to the side. A number of planets were scattered in the blackness, some visible only because of the enhanced object lighting and object labeling. This was my home system, Hyatt's, and no matter how far this ship takes me, It'll always be a home to me and my kind. But I have to be able to see more than just this. <laughs> little home. Computer, scale for 5,000 light years, Victoria said. A strange vocal note in her voice. The lights blurred around them again, and now the two of them stood amidst a vast darkness, with an almost uncountable number of points of light surrounding them. Some closer, some further. The small point of light hung once again between them. Hyatt's, some ships I have to wonder if what we do really matters, so I come here to get a little sense of scale of it all, Victoria said, pressing a hand against the front part of Hyatt's. Hyatt's almost had to self-query if Hyatt's recalled anything of the human guide about something like this. It was overwhelming and very uncomfortable to be in this space. And yet, there was something that Hyatt's didn't have an explanation for about the entirety of the experience Victoria's presence adding something to it. Query, Victoria will be mentally well to perform duties, Hyatt's managed, still not comprehending all of what was happening. Yes, Hyatt's, I'll be alright, Victoria said. Query, will Victoria show Hyatt's how holographic suite works? Hyatt's questioned, the inquiry seeming to come from that strange sensation within Hyatt's. I'd love to, Victoria responded, a small smile on her face as the stars moved around them. End of story. Story number two. Industry. 
written by I.R. Good at writing. Which race in the coalition is our biggest threat? Instructor Galt asked the classroom full of inexperienced soldiers. His twelve eyes looked around the room independently, waiting for a recruit to speak up. No one did. This isn't a trick question, he said with a hint of annoyance. If the Eternal Crusade is to succeed, you have to know this, and you aren't dishonoring the King of Kings by admitting our enemies are strong. Someone sitting in one of the desks at the far end of the room raised a tentacle. Speak, Instructor Galt said. The Kokarak, sir, Blue Recruit said. That's a good guess. Ten feet of muscle and raw power. Real bastards to deal with on the battlefield. But no, they aren't the most dangerous. The recruit nodded and looked disappointed. Instructor Galt looked around the room. A few more people raised their tentacles. He picked a soldier in the front row. I've got a few friends who came back from the front. They all said the Yolterine are the worst race to encounter. I hear an entire company can blend in with the environment. You can't see them until you're almost stamping on them. By then, it's too late. An interesting opinion, but your friends are wrong. Instructor Galt shook his head. Come on, everyone, think bigger. What's stopping us from annihilating the coalition? The recruit shifted around their desks and whispered to each other, trying to come up with an answer. The recruit in the middle of the class rose to speak at the prodding of his fellow soldiers. We think the Thrax are the biggest problem. With their hive mind, they can coordinate attacks perf. Shut up! Instructor Galt cut of the air with the tentacle. All those racials are ferocious enemies on the battlefield. Each one of them can be beaten with superior tactics, numbers, and firepower. He took a deep sigh and steadied his eyes. The biggest threat in the coalition is thousands of light years away from the front. Humans, they don't have a hive mind, cloaking skin, or great strength. Their deadliest weapon is industry. The recruits in the classroom weren't following him. He gritted his teeth and tried to explain. Do you really think the Coralax have the ability to build armor that only our heaviest Gauls cannons can bunch through? Then mass produce it in the millions? What about the Cyanions? At the start of the war, they only just discovered FTL drives. Now they're flying around in capital ships the size of small moons. Instructor Galt pounded a tentacle against his podium causing the class of soldiers to jump. Without the damned humans, we would have cleared half the galaxy by now. Every projectile that flies past your head and each artillery shell launched in your direction was made by them. For each ship shut down, they'll build five more to take its place. The room was silent. Instructor Galt regained his composure and addressed the recruits again. Humans are the most dangerous race because they all make every day worse than the last until we can't fight anymore. We can't sit around and wait a year or a decade to win. We have to go out there and beat them. No! He paused, giving the soldiers one last look. Class dismissed! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1165 Tapping Out, written by Hypothetical Shagoth Ambassador Admiral retired Aiden Otier nodded to his guest and finished the remaining touches for the evening. Two of the room's walls were lined with oaken casks. The observer sat in the middle of one of the others, 
and the final wall possessed the sole entrance into the room, deep in the heart of the station. The room was behind several security cordons and surrounded by a number of physical buffers, including some esoteric designs. In the center of the room, a table with two modest chairs. Upon the table, two cups of Vatican crystal, befitting the ambassador's station, and an entirely normal candle in an unpleasant shade of red. Satisfied that the preparations were complete, the ambassador turned off the room's lights and struck a match, lighting the candle. A light barely reached the back of the chairs, the room's darkness drinking the light far more than expected. I call upon the ancient contracts, the old bargains. I offer the price, freely and willingly. Come, those who would have their chance. The darkness behind him took on a texture, and a third individual joined the ambassador at the table, lurking at the edges of the light. The figure wore a travel-worn clothes, and its skin simultaneously had a pallor and a feverish glow of someone deeply ill. I pestilence, plague, father, bearer of the born by disease, here and accept your challenge. A nearby colony has an outbreak, and I was nearest to hear your call. The figure's voice was a damp whisper, resigned and amused at once. The ambassador nodded his head to the new guest and filled both classes. Purest Terran Dew, aged in wild-grown oak for a lifetime. He then raised his glass to the shadowed figure and knocked his drink back, marooned on the other side of the table. There was a satisfied noise and the figure rose to a stagger to one side, sinking to the floor. Long has a stew and it's like been used. You fend me off. I did not expect to win, but it was always nice to have a taste of home. The figure slurred the final words, its complexion improved as it drifted off to sleep. Ambassador Aiden refilled the glasses, and as he set them down, the seat was filled. This time, a large entity sat before him, its motions implying restraint violence and the candle's light glinting off nails and teeth that would be better called claws and fangs. I, Hermahantia, in darkness, predator, taker of fools and heroes, I hear your challenge, son of man, and I will claim my due. The voice struck a balance between civil tone and warning snarls. The glasses rose and were drained. The shadowed figure smugly tapped the rim of its glass, and the glasses were refilled. The ambassador asked after the hunter's prey, and they shared stories of old days, pirates and criminals, void beasts, and the times their paths crossed. Eventually, however, the hunter took its dignified leave, finding a patch of floor well away from pestilence to pass out. Goblin, his chin barely over the table, lasting longer than many, though blearily calling it quits when it tried a sleight of hand its final drink away, but merely splashed itself across the face. Nemesis, the fallen, the tempter, who looked like a handsome example of humanity, until you saw its eyes were darker than the room behind it. He lasted through several grand stories of varying implausibility, and then, with the dignity of a falling tree, simply fell out of his seat. 
Warburg's harvester. An entity, looking like an untidy stack of assorted deep-sea creatures, greeted the ambassador. Staking out the light in that fog, we should listen to the law we need one, we need one, I must solve the issue or Aiden nodded, smiling, and responded, thank you. I hope your missus and the star brood are doing quite well too. And proceeded to go through two casks, drinking and trading tales with the creature. The observer, meanwhile, began to hear the chorus of left-handed minor birds operatically reciting the local regulations on accounting standards any time he looked at the thing in the second chair too long. So the night continued. Figures would arrive and share drinks with the ambassador, sharing threats and stories. Creatures out of the Terran's deep history, shadowy figments and haunts. Eventually, all wound up sleeping off their portions of the Terran's dew. The seat remained empty for a spell. The observer stirred. If, Major Point, your species has many and varied entities watching you, who would notice and object to others taking their prey? The voice paused. But, uh, surely, entities like these, they would have to know that you have bioorganic machinery sipping most of the alcohol from your digestive system before it hits your blood, don't they? Terran diplomats are famous for their ability to consume nigh on anything and your fleet officers seem capable of consuming the rest, if they have to. Aiden poured one last pair of glasses worth of liquor, and looked into the shadows behind the observer. A local fleet admiral who had been blustering about scoring humankind from known space, the darkness, Ripple, and the final guest leaned out of the observer's shadow, stepping past to accept its glass. A tall, ancient skeleton, clad in a row of darkness, from between the stars. Of course we knew. Except for the goblin, perhaps. And any of us could have annulled that. Winning was not the point of this evening. And all who competed made sure none of the others cheated. The skeleton stepped around the alien who is visibly torn between frozen in mortal dread and most profound desire to be anywhere else. Its voice differed from all the others before. Others had been visceral forces, sound from the psyche or born from the imagination of a species. Its voice was the silence of a skipped heartbeat, of a breath not taken, an absence that gripped the brainstem and got the point across. We are not playing for the ambassador, nor his firstborn, nor anything small like that. You were a threat to our blocks, those who made some of us, and sustain us all. The skeleton lifted its glass to the ambassador, the first of the evening to offer him a toast. Your health. The skeleton and the ambassador both took long draws from their beverages, eyeing the fleet admiral. Somehow, the skeletal figure's drink disappeared as it passed his jawline. The point, admiral, radiant pious of the true temple of the expunging light, was to show you whose attention you had come to in threatening humanity. The point was to convince you that they had stood up to more frightful things since before your first prophet. The point was for you to convince your leaders 
that in this case they should. The skeleton barely drained its glass and set it next to the ambassador's empty one. Concede. Ambassador Aiden and the final challenger nodded respectfully to each other. Both knew that this was not the night for their final appointment. Fleet Admiral Radiant Pius, commander of one of the more active war fleets in the region, hurried from the room, framing his recommendation to the priest advisors back home that humanity may not be the ideal target for purification and territorial reclamation they had been assessed as. End of story. Story number two. Death Seekers, written by Grey Wolfen. On thousands of worlds and countless languages and cultures, the Death Seekers are creatures of myth, of legend. The proudest warrior king, the most powerful of empress, dare not defy their great black ships. They arrive without mourning or ceremony to wage war and claim their tribute. Plagues, famine, disease, death. These draw them as sure as rotting corpses draw scavengers. Worlds, both savage and civilized, know their symbol for death. A cloaked figure holding a twisted and curved blade. The harvester, the reaver, the reaper. They are known by many names. Bloody-handed, unyielding cutters of flesh and shell. And soldiers of the long on worlds where they have walked, great temples or structures are built under their orders and by their designs, filled with acolytes and followers. They claim the wisest, the brightest, and the best as tribute, taking them to their ships or their temples to change them, teaching and learning from them, and returning them with new knowledge, new machines, and new ways of thinking. They are older than any other and have fought an unending and eternal war, a war in which they may win or lose a battle or a siege, but never, ever surrender or flee. Within their buildings all are treated the same, from the greatest lord to the lowest peasants. None may deny them, no command them. Yet any who suffer, who feel pain, who are sick may come, and they will do their best to help. Death seekers find places of suffering and disease to fight their long war against death itself. To cure disease, to repair and rebuild flesh and muscle, to face death itself and say, No more! That is what they do. The symbol of the Twisted Cross is one of hope, of healing, of mercy, and name of Death Seekers is the name of healers, of the wise and the learned. On worlds from one end of the galaxy to another, human means healer, and their symbol is eternal. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1166. Story number one. Terror Tolerance, written by Belly Master. Mora is a Nixon, a bipedal fox-like species known for their acute hearing and smell. 
She works for the police force in the city hunting down offenders of the law when the force is spread to thunder. Laura has followed her human contact to an illegal drug den where she has located her mark, a man named Breen. He is currently under the influence of a new drug the humans have created. Laura bent down and sniffed cautiously at the new drug. It smelled like a burnt battery. She looked up at Walter. What category is it? The human gestured proudly. These are an adrenal category, specifically fear. The consumable takes effect immediately. The larger the dose, the more intense the experience. For when you need to spice things up a bit. Laura stood, expression skeptical. I'm sorry, you said fear. Why would, uh, I? Walter shrugged. It's a rush. When humans are in danger or feel like they're in danger, they get a buzz off of it. Same thing as horror films and jump scares. It just works for some people. She motioned to the humans scattered around the room, unmoving and silent. Why are they like that, though? You humans normally jump around or run away when you get scared. Both Randy and Walter snickered. Yeah, true. But this is uh, different. The drug initiates a state of paralysis so the user can't hurt themselves. The effects are entirely mental, no residual to the physical effect, except the twitching and paranoia and hair pulling that comes from heavy use over a long period of time. Laura squinted. It sounded insane. She looked down at the drugs. It was literally just the essence of fear. How would it even... She sighed, her natural curiosity getting the better of her. May I try some? Test it out, you know. Randy's eyes widened, and Walter nodded, eyes off to the side. It should work. We're similar enough. Take a tiny dose, though, so it doesn't last too long. Laura nodded and reached for one of the thinner slices. That would cost you, and is not cheap. Just take out a tiny bit with your claw. She obliged and sliced out a tiny piece of the red substance no bigger than a crumb. Without hesitation, she stuck it in her mouth and swallowed. If these new drunks were going to be on the streets, somebody needed to make a report. Her contact shook his head. You just can't help yourself, can you? Laura tried to answer, but her mouth wouldn't respond. She started to fall over. The two humans caught her and laid her on the ground. Walter stood and left the room. Let me know when she's out so that we can talk prices. Shouldn't be any more than a minute. Randy shook his head and held her hand. Her eyes stopped working. She couldn't feel the floor any longer. She couldn't feel anything. Time dilated, and her essence floated in blackness. Nothing existed. Then, with a feeling like being sucked into a vacuum, she was exposed to sheer terror. Dark nameless hunters from primal ages of a planet hunted her down and guarded her. Then fire tore at her, then ice, and then she was drowning, buried in the earth and suffocating, then falling from the sky. She was in a room with shifting walls that had red eyes, and then in a place with no words being screamed at. A hundred different horrors passed through her, over her, destroying her, then uh, the true fear began. Alone on a desolate planet with nothing but a burning sun, then in an empty city, then her own home, nobody was there. Her children were gone. Her cousin, the one she'd promised to pay for transportation to the city, showed up in front of her with empty eyes. The scene shifted. 
Laura was in the main office. All her co-workers were cheering for something. She looked down, and there was a plaque around her neck that said, Number One. She looked up again, and the hundreds of cells with inmates surrounded her cheering co-workers. Then she was at home. Her children were there. Then they ran to her. Lo, I'm hungry. Where has all the food gone, Lo? You promised it wouldn't happen again. She tried to reach out, but she was whisked away. Again and again, a thousand different situations played out. Her mind screamed to run, but she couldn't move. She yearned to cry out, but she couldn't open her mouth. She was electrified with terror, invigorated with fear. She was alive, but so close to being dead. She walked the brink of existence. And then it was over. Laura sat up with a gasp and began panting, her heart racing. She wanted to scream, but the terror had left her with a numbed mind. She turned to Randy, who was looking at her empathetically. It's no fun, I know. We all had to try it. At a loss for words, Laura tried to get up. She looked around in fear, terrified that something might have followed her out. In front of her, her mark, the one she'd come into the drug den to recover, was at the table with a platter of crisis. She reached out limply and struggling to move. No, Breen. Lawrence. No, Breen. You're... you... need to come with me. The man turned around. His eyes were wide, dark, hollow. His body was shaking. Especially his hands. They held small groups of hair from his head. His eyes twitched, tears starting to form. I killed her. She, she was right there, and I was going too fast. God, she was so young. She, she had a stuffed animal. One of those penguin ones flew away as I ran right over her. He grabbed a handful of the cut of crisis and stumbled back over to his spot, muttering as he went. Can't let them find me. Penalty's too good for me. Don't deserve to live out my days being fed and warm. Oh, that little girl's. Laura watched, horrified, as O'Brien threw an entire handful of crisis into his mouth and swallowed. His body convulsed as his mouth formed apologies, and then was still. She looked over at Randy. How... How long has he been here? Two weeks. End of story. Story number two. Build a Bear, written by Lane Meller. Claire spun her crank around and around and then turned to the sullen man who stood waiting. He had picked out a skin and most of the fluff had already been taken care of. Okay, do precisely as I say. Hop up and down three times on your right leg and then take the heart and rub it on one knee so that your body will know you'll always need him. Now your toes, so that he's sure you'll never walk away and leave him. She said in an overly bubbly voice, the one retail workers use when they're already dead inside, and she gestured for the tall man to complete the ritual. Then you need to whisper his new name to the heart before I sew him up. After that, it's picking out an outfit, of course. That seems a bit excessive and uh, random, the younger man mused back. Reluctance clear in his face and ears and cheeks flushed pink. Look, do you want him to have a soul or just a huskless body for you to hug for a bear? She asked, and the same sugary toad. No one is above the ritual. Claire brushed back the mousy fringe that hung along her temple. 
long enough to be annoying, but not long enough to pull back with the rest of her mahogany locks as she patiently waited. His expression had gone sour. She suppressed a giggle. The older woman adjusted the straps on a long apron, checking that her name tag hung just so. Brushed a fringe back again, pushed her horn-rimmed glasses up where they had slipped, then checked the jewelry delicately. Clients always hemmed and hard for a variety of reasons, but they never turned away. A bit of strategic negligence was best in these instances. They were already here. He had already talked himself into it. She just needed to wait for that little voice to pipe up and remind him why they were both in the brightly lit shop. She smoothed out the wrinkles in her blouse, studiously ignoring her customer as she continued to wait. He piped up. Is uh, all of this really necessary? It seems embarrassing. He replied shakily, staring at the glowing organ she offered him. And a bit more gore than I was expecting, to be honest with you. He was afraid to touch anything on the table. She noticed with amusement, hands hovering awkwardly. Do you want the perfect boyfriend or not? She replied with a snap. Because reanimation is a process. If you don't want to do the ceremony, let the next customer through. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1167 Story number one. Office Perspectives, written by Lost Carcosin. Jella Malal Ognat sat impatiently in his office, sipping his coffee while he read the day's newspaper and waited for Jezza to show up. This was not the most accurate description. Jella Malal was actually consuming a drink known as Sclavert, and it was more in common with a sulfurous superheated liquid from deep ocean vents than any coffee that you'd ever drank as well as considerably higher arsenic levels. But Jujela Malal's species had acted as a stimulant and was the go-to beverage in the mornings, or if you needed a pick-me-up to last you through the long 47-hour shift. To be perfectly honest, you probably wouldn't have recognized what he was doing to a newspaper as reading either, if I hadn't told you. Every alien species finds each other so freakishly incomprehensible at first that it is a miracle that communication between them is even possible at all. But communicate, they do. Eventually, and after a generation or two of contact, most sentient species realize that underneath all the strangeness, they're pretty much the same. So for now, ignore Jal Malal's clavat. He's reading Proviscus, and the fact that since no one is paying much attention to him right now, He's starting to discohere around the edges of his office chair. It's probably best to picture Jalma'al as an out-of-shape middle-aged civil servant in the Galactic Union's diplomatic corps, who's annoyed that some bureaucratic holdup has him cooling his heels instead of doing his job. Eventually, Jezza Mushiga wanders into his office, careful not to breathe the fumes from the coffee. They aren't the same species. The first time one of Jez Mushiga's people encountered one of Jalmalal's, there had been screams, blaze of fire, and mutual episodes of vomiting. These days, everyone got along without a second thought, even taking each other's national holidays off from work as an excuse for parties. Jalmalal expels the dregs of the newspaper from his proboscis, and he edges become defined once more. He pushes the coffee towards the back of his desk. Hey, Jez Mushiga. What's this nonsense about needing security clearance? Check. I'm supposed to be meeting the human ambassador in 20 minutes. Technically, Jezza Mashugaga is Jamalal's superior, 
Magella Malal has been working with the new admittee species of the Galactic Society for much longer than Jezameshika has. He's gone through the whole protocol dozens of times, from first contact, better left to field agents, it can get quite messy sometimes, to high-level trade negotiations. Just because the Quoko Lanarchy sees space in four dimensions doesn't mean their cooperation should be exempt from black taxes. At any rate, Jella Malal knows how to handle this routine stuff. There shouldn't be any security clearance problems. Shouldn't be a huge deal, Jazamashuga responded. There has just been a new development from the Science Communication Bureau, and certain topics are now off limits to anyone talking with humans until they pass the provisional membership stage of the Galactic Society. But the humans have a threat assessment now. I thought we'd agreed they're fairly harmless. Picture Jamalal quizzically raising a thick eyebrow here. He's actually just slightly altered several arm positions, but the meaning is the same. They probably are, but for some time being, no one is allowed to talk to them about anything involving quantum mechanics. That should be easy enough, Jalmanel snorted. I'm a diplomat, not a physicist. I don't know a thing about building strangelets, bombs, or flavored disruptors. That's not exactly the problem. Jizza Majuga hesitated. Here, yeah, watch this. It's a human recording of a university lecture that they handed to us during a science communication exchange. Jizya Mashuga pulled out something that you actually probably would have recognized as a screen, albeit tuned to a more ultraviolet color spectrum than you'd be used to. On it, a white-haired professor was speaking in front of a blackboard. Schrodinger's cat, I assume most of you have heard of it. Famous start experiment. Can anyone tell me about it? The student comfortably raised a hand. There's a cat trapped in a box with a vial of poison or a gun or something. It's set to go off and kill the cat if a certain particle undergoes a random decay. If one thing happens, the cat lives. If the other possible state occurs, it's dead. But until an observer actually comes along and opens up the box, the cat exists in a superposition of both alive and dead states simultaneously. Capital! Shouts the professor. Jason Mashmugar pauses the tape so that they can catch up with the translation. Jalmalal speaks. So, uh, what's the problem here? I vaguely remember something like this from college. This isn't something like our science hasn't covered since before we invented spaceships. Is there a problem that the humans are going to need a thousand years worth of science compressed into remedial courses to catch up? No. The problem is here, in the next bit. Jejmesh Magar restarts the recording. The explanation you've just given is exactly how most people picture Schrodinger's cat. The professor practically shouting to his lecture hall. He clearly is the kind of teacher that likes to get into the groove and roll along. And yet, it gives people the most profound misconceptions. The key word here is observer. Let me write that on the blackboard. A hideous screeching noise comes out of the screen and Jalmalal winces before the professor continues. What counts as an observer? Does quantum mechanics require some magical watcher in order for our universe to properly exist? Not at all. The act of interaction, any interaction with microscopic system is enough to collapse the probability function into a real world. The universe doesn't stop existing properly when we stop looking at it. We can talk about particle superpositions and do the math. But by the time the system is interacting with the poison vial and the cat, we are back to solid existence. 
No mysterious watcher required. Yeah, Jajam Mashmagar stops the tape. Jalmadal sits there, stunned for a second. What is he talking about? He asks. Why would the humans pretend the world is constant without specially trained observers looking at it? Jalmadal would probably be discohering out of confusion right now. But Jezer Mashmaga is partially a higher grade of civil servant because of his excellent coherence training. The office stays as it is, not as all possible things it could or couldn't be. And now you get it, Jamalal. We thought that so far they'd been trying to show how important they were taking the first contact process by always collapsing every wavefront, only sending top observers to meet with us. But no, the humans seem to have an objective reality all the time, every one of them, with no skill or training. They only discovered these really obvious basics of microscopic scales where their senses can't directly penetrate. Are you saying these humans are are somehow more real or something? They don't just collapse into solid beings when it's important, but all the time. Well, like I said, the Science Communication Bureau is looking into it, but it seems that on some levels, this really may be the human's universe. Now, do you understand why this topic is off limits for the moment? Jamalal fluttered ventral gills that would mount to a nod. Of course, this would give them a huge advantage in establishing trade negotiations. Now came the fact that they might be constantly sustaining our universe off the table until after they've agreed to a favorable currency exchange rate. End of story. Story number two. Uncaged, written by underscore underscore te underscore underscore. Earth sits in a sweet spot, gravity-wise. A denser planet with a higher gravity, or a larger planet with a deeper gravity well, and humanity would have never built rockets adequate to the task of escape. Earth is, in fact, very near the apex of escapable in terms of the tyrannical rocket equation. But low gravity has its own problems. A low gravity has trouble retaining sufficient atmosphere to shield life against cosmic rays, unless the planet is very large and low density, in which case the gravity well becomes too deep again. That's a big effect, one that reduces the chances of life at all. But there are subtler impacts as well. One is lignin. Lignin developed in part from evolutionary pressure to support greater plant growth mass against the strain of gravity. It has a side effect of shielding plants from enzyme dissolution after death allowing plant matter to accumulate in vast burial grounds and form kerrigan and bitumen, i.e. the precursors to petroleum. Higher gravity counts twice here. Lignin alone won't produce petroleum. It has to be compacted over time by gravity. Too low a gravity, and lignin is unlikely to develop. There is no evolutionary pressure to select for that kind of vertical strength, because plant mass can get big enough without it. Without lignin, most plants decay and re-enter the ecological energy cycle long before they have a chance to turn into energy-dense hydrocarbons. And even with it, lessened compaction results in fewer hydrocarbons and less rich hydrocarbons. That turns out to be important, because you can't build an efficient rocket without it. Eventually, eventually, a species can develop ways to chemically produce rich hydrocarbons from little more than raw materials, sunlight, and industrial facilities. 
but the species has to know what they're aiming for. And getting into space is far, far more expensive and requires more advanced technology. So much more expensive, in fact, that it might have eventually happened, but it hasn't. Once you've gotten into space, fortunately, things get easier. And in fact, once you've bootstrapped, you can get rid of the petroleum requirement entirely. Low power drives with high endurance are even superior in zero-g. And from the privilege of orbit, you can build beanstalks and pull the rest of the species up. Once you've gotten into space, there are thousands of super-Earths full of intense and incredible life, but trapped in their immense gravity wells. And there are tens of thousands of borderline low-gravity worlds where life has scrabbled its way through the cosmic compartment with tough and careful and beautiful sapiens, but trapped by their paucity of resources and petroleum. We were never alone, but we were the only ones with a key to the cage. But now that we're in space, we have beanstalks and asteroid minings and rocket fuel factories. Our resources are practically infinite. We can build keys for everyone. We just have to decide to. We can open the cages. The question today is simply, should we? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1168 Story number one They must be kept Written by Lords of Jupe Superintendent Agortex Definitely Speaking on behalf of the caretaker battalion Left over a salt bribe The human homeworld We have a rather truncated report to offer the cycle In lieu of the typical 50 page plus sites offerings What is available is in a single missive No images are needed as is hopes that the words will convey an adequate amount of information. Of course, per instruction, the caretaker battalion has emplaced a high orbit around the human homeworld, currently classified as no-fly, directive-only contact, rated as a Class J death world. In short, an intergalactic community's lowest possible rating for an inhabited planet, inclusive of dump zones and irradiated reminder worlds at the galactic battle frontiers. In assigning in this detail to the caretaker battalion, he was understood that all requirements, as they evolve, would be met, as needed, and as often as possible. Notably, this message is a reminder that those scheduled shipments of arms, armor, material, and fuel have fallen out of favor, and that the situation has evolved into a new, much more dangerous set of circumstances. Managing the humans for the last general order is no longer a terrible option for exploration. Neither are punitive executions of leaders, civilian collectives, or a species-wide newborn culling viable. Terminal genetic warfare has been at a standstill for 300 cycles. Nuclear warheads are in such short supply as to be a joke, inclusive of those taken off the world rumper. Energy weaponry is underpowered when functional, and as such, need comprehensive overhauls, from the lowest-rated stunfield generators to the core-cracking ion pulse arrays. Being at a ragged edge is not quite enough to convey the situation. It has been exceeded. Consequently, we will need to arrange for an off-site removal of approximately 2.9 billion of the human populace, as to affix them to the nearest orbiting satellite, which is marked on galactic maps as Sol Terra Luna Prime or Terra 1A. Material for their well-being is paramount, as is food generation, power cells, plus material, and a sort of living and habitable module kits. There is an attached file detailing the specifics. 
Once again, the human's homeworld has exceeded all expectations for survivability after the continued barrages of assaults, executive kidnappings, fomented revolutions by proxy forces, and subversive elements installed during the tenure of the caretaker battalion. As such, off-world sourcing of storage is needed, while the planet is to undergo biome rehabilitation as comprehensively as possible, as soon as possible. Moreover, caretaker battalions, as the vanguard of the industry itself, must maintain the momentum. A Class F and a Class G planetary reconstruction munitions plant is needed on site, immediately, as to guarantee access to the aforementioned needed. Without it, the caretaker battalion will be unable to fulfill the contract as demanded, and will have a breach, with all due indemnity applied to the parent company proper. To avoid this breach, it is a requirement and thus non-negotiable. Enough time has been spent with missing opportunities that this one cannot be allowed to slip, as the Empire itself may be at risk of the human contagion breaching storage boundaries and spreading into the universe. They must be maintained, kept to their single planet, and not allowed to travel beyond their gravity well. The risks are immense should they escape. Every simulation ends the same. Eradication of all hostiles arranged against them, indefinitely, until the humans are nullified or victorious throughout the galaxy. Lieutenant Kahex Macaque, 3rd Caretaker Battalion, Soul Prime Station. Press send, and I'll take the scan out of what I can assume is your nose. Gods help me. Send. End of story. Story number two. The Bloodflower, written by a lone donut. Nalina watched the humans as they passed. This part of the station was a favorite to sit at people watch, as the humans called it, as so many interesting people would pass through. Traders and mercenaries, soldiers and religious members, it didn't matter if they were from the Reich, the Alliance, or the Nomads, Earth or the Gaian Protectorate. They all looked so different and carried such fascination for Nalina. But something had changed in them recently. A shift. Not in their demeanor or their attitude. Nothing so obvious. They were all wearing the same thing. A piece of red fabric with a black center placed over where the human heart allegedly lay. The crack had found this interesting, in the way that only a child could, and had watched from the balcony of the commission station, as people based below on the promenade. She had watched soldiers with it proudly pinned to the uniform above the marks of commendation, she had seen it on civilians on any number of jackets, and when it could not be placed above the heart, it was kept as close as possible. The oddest, though, was the gaggle of alien armor-clad guards standing near the entrance to one of their military vessels, pinned to their armor through what she could only assume was magnets, their red pieces of fabric. She had to know. Giving her eyes one last lick to assure herself, she marched over to a group with a dignity only a child could manage, and came to a stop a few feet from the guards. When they all turned to look at her, she pointed, and in a voice that exuded believed authority, she exclaimed, What is that? The humans exchanged a few looks, their faceless visors making the silent communication that would normally be easy to decipher impossible, before the closest shrugged and pointed at the fabric. This, the male voice asked, clearly marked with confusion. Nalina nodded. The man bent down so he was eye-level with her. Tapping a button on the helmet, the visor melted away and revealed his face. An ugly mug by crack standards. 
What with his square jaw and sky-blue eyes matched to his pale skin. Truly hideous. It's a flower we were our fallen dead, he said, a smile on his face. Another ugly human habit that indicated happiness. Honoring the dead was something the crack understood. Nalina's own mother had a father's skull that she would wear for the celebration of death. Many species kept mementos of the dead, but to see a flower. A flower parroted Nalina from her brain. Flowers didn't represent the dead. They were for the living. The human nodded. It is an abandoned flower. It grew on the battlefields following a great war many centuries ago on Earth. We call it a poppy. This made more sense to Nalina. After all, if the flower grew from the dead, that would be pretty important. She was not aware a dead human grew flowers when they died. She nodded. A blood flower, she said with certainty, which drew a round of laughter from the humans. So you wear a blood flower to gain its strength then? Which only made the gathered humans laugh more. <laughs> no, no, replied one who was kneeling. The flower reminds us of that battle. In human culture, the greatest sacrifice a soldier may make is laying down his life for those he defends. We wear the poppy to remind ourselves of their sacrifices, to honor them, and to resolve to not make the mistakes of our ancestors. It comes from a poem. In Flanders' fields, replied another human from behind him. The group nodded. And when we get close to the day of the war's end, we wear the flower to remind ourselves, an offering to those who came before, and those who still do battle to protect us now, replied the kneeling human. He reached around from behind and pulled one of the flowers, bending it to a shirt. We once fought your people, and now we consider each other friends. We will honor both our dead today. Okay. The human stood back up, seeming taller to Nalina than he had done moments before. She regarded the flower on her shirt, then the man once more, and took off towards her home. The poem was easily found, as were the pictures of the flower on earth. This didn't quite look right, but it was close enough for Nalina. And when she was in her class a few days later, she proudly pulled out the poem and a small felt flower to show her classmates. She read it, proud and true, and explained its meaning to her classmates. Well, as well as your child could really explain such a complex issue. As she grew, she kept the flower, more close to the time of the human's remembrance, and was proud to talk of her own family history as a soldier. As it did, war came one day, and Nalina, a proud crack, went to war to defend her nation and the honor of her people. She fought alongside humans, and many came to consider her a friend. Melina didn't get to wear that flower after that war. Found amongst her belongings, as it was after the conflict, but you can still find it, pinned to a wall of names on a human starbase, kept clean by those who visit. Lest we forget. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1169. Story number one. 
Less than Generations, Vale, written by Vincia Ortmaria. Zyquakquitlu Research Center, Biological Containment Facilities. Claxon's bed as the signal lights washed over the walls in waves of crimson's light. Galatu rushed through the hallways, passing squads of security personnel as they jogged to the breach, weapons at the ready and faces grim. Seeing them pushed Galatu into a faster stride, until he was all but sprinting down the gleaming steel corridors. Galatu's hands were shaking with fear and effort as he reached the first blast door separating the high-security zone from the rest of the vicinity. His three-fingered hand covered in a nervous sweat. It took the lock two attempts to read Galatu's signature. Galatu scursed the precious seconds that ticked away as he attempted to wipe his hand on the soft, downy fur of his chest. Passing over the threshold into a high-security zone, Galatu was struck, even in this instance of danger, by the contrast. Between the sterile, gleaming corridors of the facility and the soft furnishings of the pastel cutters of this room. As an accomplished genopsychologist, Kalatu could identify most of the artifacts in the room, from the models of vehicles and life forms that were scattered on the floor, to piles of geometric forms in various colors that were stacked in fantastic and improbable construction in one corner of the room. These, Kalatu knew, were toys an ingenious method of recreational instruction devised by uncategorized species X32117. There were carefully framed artifacts on the wall, images of scenes from a species' home world. Karatu's eyes were drawn, as ever, to a much more interesting discovery. The framed documents containing little more than written words. The words were arranged without regard for grammar or any of the usual conventions of literary communication, but rather to sound pleasing when read aloud. One of the test subjects had called the invention poetry. What's going on? came a sleepy yet annoyed question from the corridor that led to the other rooms of the section of the facility. Kalatu turned and saw his two specimens. Their species was a small one. A fully mature adult would rarely reach to Kalatu's shoulder. And these two, who were not more than ten cycles in age, were not yet as tall as Kalatu's waist. Bending his long joints backwards, Kalatu lowered himself to the specimen's eye level. Kalatu addressed the taller of the two, a small male, who glared at Kalatu in a manner at once both hostile and frightened. While his litter mate, a young female, hid her face against his shoulder, a soft toy clutched in her trembling hands. There has been a breach in security. I need you and your... Kalatu racked his brain for the word sister to come with me to safety. Before Kalatu could move to speak further, the door slid open behind him. Kalatu turned in time to see a black-clad shape drop what appeared to be a severed forearm with three-digit hand at the end. The figure, silhouetted against the flashing howl lights of the klaxons, moved faster than Kalatu could think. It bounded into the room, swinging its plasma rifle like a club, bringing it down on Kalatu with all the terrifying force of its dense, powerful muscles. Kalatu was thrown across the room and slammed into the wall, the force knocking one of the framed documents from the wall. As Kalatu's visions darkened, his eyes fell on a line from the poem. She is wedded to convictions, in default of grosser ties. Her contentions are her children, heaven help him who denies. He will meet no sour of decision, but the instant, white-hot wild, 
wakened female of the species, warring for a spouse, a child. The last thing Kanatu heard before the blackness overtook him was the young female's joyous cry, Mommy! End of story. Story number two. The Unwinnable War, written by Hitado. I'm writing this follow-up to my original article, The Impossible Species, as a plea. I can't do much. Not really. Species after species have seen my report, and those of others, and somehow come to the conclusion that war is the only way. Because they're too alien, too unnatural. They are contradictory, opposite to all known laws of life and reality being. So, apparently they are now our foe, and for their fearful otherness, their humanism, they must die. I am writing to tell you now that this won't work, and it's not going to work for a number of reasons. Even ignoring that there are species evolved to survive, hunt, and subdue from a Type 2 Class 12 death world that is literally called Nightmare in several major species languages, or that they're so competitive in warfare sciences that they're off pan-galactic charts. Hell, ignore the fact that there are hunting predator species, with a grasp over conflict risk and reward most species could only dream of, or that they're, even for their hellish world, designed to win by outlasting the foe or simply not going down. Ignoring all of that crack, even if it doesn't exist, we're still not beating them in a war. Because we can't find them. Humans are a space-dwelling species, People forget this crucial detail. Their megacities in space aren't tied to worlds or orbits. Their technology down to the square millimeter. They aren't governed by needing to stick around a sun or follow standard system conventions. They drift into the lightless voids between, processing materials deemed by their own councils to go unmissed or simply forging them themselves through technologies that we cannot even begin to grasp ourselves. The few worlds they have are less sites of critical strategic nature and more cultural sites, places of recreation or novelty attraction, and we don't know where those are. As of current, as soon as we declare war on them, every single human settlement's going to move somewhere deep and dark and impossible to find. The only place we know exactly of its whereabouts is going to be their homeworld, which heightened oxygenation has bumped up to a class 16 due to the re-emerging megafauna, hazardous ruins, and unpredictable weather formations capable of generating minus 50 temperatures and blasts of energy to eclipse those of stars. The only thing declaring war would do is make them mad at us. Their society focuses around duty, around righteousness to what is good. It is one of the few comprehensible things about them. They're a tough folk to live those kinds of lives. Good, but they know how to take a hit at the personal and species level. But say that somehow we find one of their world cities, what then? We storm this alien realm in pitch darkness or near pitch darkness in cumbersome EVA suits where no warrior can move in, try and kill them with our inferior armaments, just wait for them to kill us in unexpected ways. It'd be a joke to them. They'd laugh at us, laugh as they took us and tore apart with their unhindered speed, strength, and arms. 
All finding a human city would do is present us with an opportunity to walk onto a territory we're vastly unfamiliar with and under-equipped to deal with, and surrounding ourselves with a thousand, at least, of species considered by some to amount to genuine cosmic horrors, who make their place their home. No sane commander in a normal war would take a fight a tenth that bad. The worst part is it is entirely pointless anyways. Humans, for all their incomprehensible, terrifying natures, are friendly. They're evolved to be social. The nightmare void species pack bonds across species barriers, as silly and contradictory as it sounds. They actively don't draw resources from sites they think may impact a system for reasons of environmental resource protection or avoiding accidental theft. All their confusing, contrasting, and unfathomable rules and rituals and bindings that they live by and kill by, they'll forgive a person from another species for failing to recognize them. A human ignores a rule, and others beat him down. But they know to extend the benefits of the doubt to other races. Tell a human that they scare you, and they apologize and get very awkward about it. They genuinely immediately go to apologizing for unsettling you with their existence. If that's not a model of courtesy and humility, I don't know what is. Killing them would frankly be a crime against decency. If I honestly thought that we'd be able to kill any past a single surprise attack. I say again, please think before trying to annihilate the humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1170. Story number one. Roaming Charges, written by Tal McCall. Etim Rock was not a particularly disciplined member of his species. He prided himself in being a relaxed captain that treated his crew fairly and only focused on the things that mattered. You could be late for your ships, and he could care less about the state of your uniform or even if you were in uniform after the journey was underway. For this attitude, he was rewarded with the least important duties in the Navy. His ship was an aging transport, retrofitted for long flights to the outer room where it delivered fuel and supplies for long-range surveillance installations on the Okanoyan Union. What Atom could not tolerate was sabotage of his vessel's equipment his chief engineer had noticed an unusual power drain from the communications grid, and after attempting to diagnose the problem, had noticed that the ship's faster-than-light network connection had been running at almost 100% capacity since they had left port. Item's crew was too small to have proper communications officer, so after attempting to access the network traffic logs and being totally baffled by the contents, Item's chief engineer had the brilliant idea to manually trace the power draw of the data cables. After having to remove a dozen access panels to trace each node, they eventually arrived at the quarters of the human. But Tim may not have been a particularly disciplined member of his species, but crewman Simon Lizard was the least disciplined member of the least disciplined species ever burst amongst the stars. When Item had received his application to join his crew as a temporary general laborer, he had to access his translator several times to make sense of what he was reading. Simon was on a gap year, a period of non-productive activity between studies. He had not completed his species' advanced specialized training. Despite the name implying a single year of idle behavior, 
Simon had been doing this for at least three. All as part of his uh, backpacking across the Union for some great journey to uh, find himself and uh, get off the grid. Still, finding any crew willing to go on a journey to the edge of Union was difficult, and humans were known for accomplishing their work, although they often did it with a minimal amount of effort. So Item had been forced to hire this dirty-looking human and watch him drag his absurdly dirty backpack on board. Thinking back of the experience, Item couldn't believe him capable of sabotage. He certainly couldn't understand his motives, but he was about to get to the bottom of this. Using his captain's authorization, he commanded the door to open. It instead made a curious chime, and after a brief delay, he heard Simon's curious speech. You can't just like a uh, uh, knock, dude, uh, but uh, like, uh, come on in, I guess. Item had been allowing himself to be addressed as dude for far too long. His leniency with the crew had really gotten out of control. Crewman Simon, you will address me as Captain Rock. You will also immediately explain your sabotage of the ship's network. Simon didn't take his eyes off the small portable computing device on his table. Mo dude, drill, rock, chill. What, what's that about sabotage? Uh, I just changed the door authorization just in case, like, uh, I'm busy in here. Been talking to a girl in maintenance and, like, um, uh, I think maybe... Item closed the screen on Simon's device. The ship's network has been running at 100% capacity for weeks, you half, but did you think we wouldn't find out? The slow realization was spreading on the human space. You mean the net? Uh, I'm just using torrents, dude. Uh, just, dude, rock, sir, dude. What's a torrent? Just, like, stuff, dude. From home? Movies and games and some software and open source stuff. Madness, Item thought to himself. Communications were for military use only at these distances. The crew was limited to less than a terabyte per cycle for personal communications. Item hadn't even seen the last championship of the Trillion series since departure. Start making sense, Crewman. The only network out here is military-grade encrypted. Even the ship's network has a firewall built to endure a rogue AI attack. Who are you working with? Captain Rock swore he saw a smirk on the human's face. Dude, Captain, um, I, I just set up a new connection using the surveillance network after my first shift. There is like a Yotabytes of bandwidth not being used. After several hours of sitting with the crewman, Rock had decided this human might be an actual genius. With some direction, Simon had downloaded the entire Trillion series, and not just the championships, but all the sub-team games as well. In ultra resolution. Rock had spent the better part of his career flying these dead zones and nothing to do, and his human had just gotten him the latest data packets without any effort at all. Simon, this is going to be one of those things that do not matter, but can you set this up in my quarters? Sure, dude, but like, um, we need to get you a VPN and a client browser. It's no problem, dude. I did this for my grandpa, too. Captain Rock, dude. You really need to chill. End of story. Story number two. Locked, written by Chain Blue. It's locked, thought Researcher 67 quizzically. Researcher 99 called a stray thought and looked up from her display. What's locked? inquired Researcher 97, ignoring her junior researcher's lack of mental discipline. 
It wasn't all that odd for the young to exclaim their thoughts when making a new discovery. It was her first field expedition as a newly graduated xenobiologist, after all. She was bound to be a bit overly enthusiastic. Researcher 67 folded her vestigial wings slightly closer to her body as a sign of mild embarrassment. Researcher 97 repeated the question, this time making direct eye contact. Researcher 99, what is luck? Researcher 99 pointed down at the data display from the quantum resonance scanner in which the subject was currently floating. She raised her head from the display on the floor and straightened so that her torso was near a perfect 45 degree angle with the floor and formally thought, Researcher 97, the results scan of the specimen 687560616E0A shows conclusively that the specimen's brain has submolecular modifications that have locked its ability to send and receive thoughts. Otherwise, it is fully sentient. Researcher 97's mind raced where so many strands of their current perplexity began to vibrate in resonance. She allowed her assistants to hear her processing this new information. That explains our efforts to communicate with him fail, and why we were unable to calm him. No wonder the poor thing became so agitated and had begun to reek of stress pheromones when we brought him on board. We are probably lucky that he didn't become violent in self-defense before we put him to rest and recovery state. Researcher 99 vibrated her mandibles in understanding. We will have to report this to the ethics jury, won't we? We have inadvertently collected a sentient being, terrified it, and quite likely are holding it against its will, she thought mournfully. Yes, but we may have a solid defense if we can communicate with him and gain his cooperation, Researcher 97 explained. Both contact misunderstandings are more common than the ministry would have most of the population believe, she continued. There are protocols that can be followed. Our careers aren't over just yet, she concluded. It took a full two hours of dedicated processing time by all three ship's AIs working together to fully decode the subatomic lock. The code itself appeared to be vast amounts of nonsense and junk, but ultimately they found a simple but elegant design seal. Two of the ship's AIs returned their normal duties while the science AI reported the findings to the researchers by the floor display. Researcher 97 directed the science AI to transmit the wave particles that would open the specimen's mind. The display that should be showing her the progress of the process froze, pixelated and then informed into a large red octagon with white letters within. Researcher 99 thought a single word aloud, STOP, and directed a confused look at Researcher 97, did not return a gaze. All three of her eyes were transfixed on the unexpected image. The text changed. Are you sure that you want to do this? It read. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1171 Master, written by Origami Canines and humans share a strange relationship in the galaxy. A relationship that has, for its entire lifetime on the galactic stage, perplexed those who managed to experience the two species in cohabitation. No reptilian, avian, necroid, fungoid, plantoid, or all mammalian species so far encountered had shared a similar experience with other species on their planets. Fauna were fauna. Even those useful to the sentient species that eventually grew to galactic standing were even considered far uplifting. 
However, the humans did so without so much as a second thought. To put it bluntly, it was a disaster. Like enforcing trauma on a child who had no right to know such transcendent pain. The canines had not the brain capacity nor the higher reasoning to adapt to life as a sentient species. The trials lasted decades, nearing centuries. Success was built and fell upon structures of glass, each iteration looking as foolhardy as the last. Countless numbers of canines put forth for testing, training, succeeding, and ultimately, failure. To give the humans credit, they did not discard those who failed their tests. At the time, it was surmised that the humans treated failed canine sentient prospects better than most humans, though of course, they denied such allegations. As the cycles continued, the Galactic Council ruled that humanity's attempts at false sentience was a cruel crime and against galactic peace. The verdict was swift and deliberate. Humanity would cease all attempts at once under the threat of intervention. Vast war fleets put on standby, trade slowly halted with the human domain. Every race prepared for both outcomes, but none thought the peaceful Terran so delusional, so deranged, as to deny the Council. They thought they knew humanity well, but they did not. Humanity would not be stopped, not this time. The Council fleets attempted to parlay with the human opposition, entering human space with open arms, trying to reason with the Terrans that surely that they were being rash and abrasive. It was all right to fail. The canines need not be sentient to be useful. Humanity does not need to fight a pointless battle. The council fleets were told to leave. There were no smiles and the voices across the subnet. No usual cheer or emotional twine as the humans often had. There was steel. Cold, hard steel. Like a wall holding a disaster at bay. The Zatharian cruiser checked the human's bluff. The species had been good friends. They would not harm another sentient race over something so trivial. The screams after were a warning. And so the council fleets engaged. The war, as was believed, was pointless. The humans were the strong arm of the Galactic Council, and the entirety of the council fleet's power only mirrored the human in size. The outer colonies were besieged, captured, and then recaptured in brutal fighting that exhausted both sides' logistics to an uncomfortable point. Centuries spread across decades across years of local system fighting, as generation after generation died. Some growing up without a day of peace. But still, the humans fought. Then suddenly, as it had started, and it stopped. Humanity's first envoy in a century arrived within the council space, and with them a new breed of canine, Canis Vortis. They strode beside the humans like gaunt protectors, their ears shot, their snouts scowled, their fangs sheathed, yet at the ready. The same species that had been used as rats for many a lifetime now stood beside humanity like a brother who had always been. They dressed in a similar yet styled clothing. Their speech was a mimicry, but carried their own charm. They were everything. Humanity praised them as being, and everything that they had hoped. Genetically engineered beings adapted from old. 
For humanity's crimes, they accepted a 12th century trading deficit. A fee was to be paid to each affected council species for the damages wrought, and humanity's rights to species uplifting was revoked indefinitely, save for any remainder of canines. Lastly, the Canis Fortis was to be informed of the suffering their species underwent as a result of human hubris. The Council expected such information to cause a rift to appear between the two species. Perhaps among their sharp ears, their scowled snouts and their sheathed fangs, the Canis also had piercing gazes sharper than any avians. Upon hearing the revelations of their suffering, the Canis present all turned around at once to their human envoy and saw something no one else with them could see. At first, only the female envoy approached taking the human hand. Then the gods who placed a hand on the human now shook with what was presumed to be fright. Then the oldest amongst them, the male envoy, the alpha, approached the human. We're sorry, the human muttered a whisper on the wind. So sorry. We tried so hard, we just wanted you to stay with us. The human sobbed, his face twisted into a distant features of pain. He was harmed, not by the canis, but his own thoughts. He fell to his knees, clutched now by the female as the guards remained stalwart in their posture, gazing at the others with a glare that read threat and warning. The alpha performed a strange sign of affection, a poured hand rubbing the human's head, assuring Another mimicry of their own ancestral sign of affection, though usually performed to canines. He stood, now standing before the delegation. His eyes were sharp. His gaze cut the room in two. His fur lay atop muscles that were not the first noticeable, but now were more apparent as his hair seemed to bristle and stand on end. A sigh escaped his sharp tooth lips as his hair relaxed. No apologies for that display. We are still trying to work out our instinctual kinks. His voice boomed, easily heard by all. I would ask you all to refrain from reciting such information again in the presence of the masters. They are far more kind than you can possibly know. As for the delivered sentencing, the Canis Waters will take half of humanity's punishment as our own, he announced. And to much surprise, the gaggled of counselors echoed gurglings of discontent until one of them spoke again. Half, don't be absurd. Why would you put such a weight upon yourselves as such a young species? And for such a race that has psycho-tortured your people for centuries? And to call their master after such? Please forgive me, Ambassador, but how can you utter such words? Yet again, the hair on the alpha's back bristled poking up beneath his clothing, ushering a small silence amongst the Mimidian counselors, while the others hushed out patience for his response. Remember what the masters said. Breathe in, count to three, breathe out. In through your nose, out through your mouth, the alpha thought, calming his growing anger. Another king in his system. No, please forgive me, ambassador. I must be mistaken as to think the only one among any of you who would give the lives of their people for a lesser race was the master here. He gestured back to the human, 
who, with the help of the female canis, now stood upon shaky legs. She nuzzled him affectionately, not out of perverse love, but as a mother would a cub, a protective, reassuring nuzzle. Forgive me, all of you, for perhaps I am blind as to not see the companion species amongst any of you. No friend for whom you've given shelter, trust, loved, and ultimately sentience for the sole reason of standing by you for a millennia. No companion who, when you evolved and their reason for being was left behind, did you find alternatives to always keep them useful. And when even those alternatives dried up, you kept them anyways, even when logic told you not to. An avian spoke, her shrill voice a question of conviction, not of doubt. But they tortured you, your ancestors. Many died. They could have saved you so much pain, but they did so anyways. There was no other way. Our species was old. The breeding of which our older cells were accustomed to had begun to lead to genetic dead ends. My ancestors were being born into pain and suffering, for a mistake that was made by greed that only hubris could correct. I believe most of you also partake in such horrid actions, yet I see only our masters being the victim of attempting to fix their mistake the only way possible. The counselors remained silent, a truth that they had not been wise to reveal to them, a history never mentioned explained. Still, they had seen the conviction behind the elves' words. The juror amongst the counselors spoke up, having heard enough. If you are sure of your convictions, Ambassador, I will adjourn this council and name your species as an accessory to humanity's crimes. As you have asked, you will also be placed under trade deficit and be required to assist humanity in their reparations to the species affected by the hostilities. However, I must add, as you are a fresh species, you will also be prohibited from colonizing any worlds, and you will be banned from this council for four centuries' time. This is a punishment delivered to all first offending nations who breach intergalactic law. The offer nodded in agreement without a moment's hesitation, and so they adjourned. The offer turned back to his delegation, and the human who wore a shocked and pained look. Khan! You should not have done that. You and your people need to grow. Now you'll have to wait nearly half a millennia to do so. We've put you through enough. Please just ask them to overrule the center. The human was stopped as the quick paw being pushed against his lips. A weird sensation, given how much softer to a human hands the pads were. Master, please, we've stood by humanity's side for many years. Allow us the right to decide what is worthy now that we are able to, the Alpha mused, his quiet tongue drawing the eyes of the packmates who began smiling in agreement. Besides, what's a few more centuries amongst family, huh? Among the swishing tails for the first time in their long trip to the council space, the human laughed. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1172. Species 401 Survey of a Dead World. Written by Calamity Comet. We detected a double flash 15 light years away. 
It was a sheer fire signal that once more a species had destroyed itself. Our four small ships departed at once. It would be a three-year journey. It would also be the first time I was in command of the survey. Species wiping themselves out before they became FTL-capable is unfortunately one of the core laws of the universe. Mine was the only recorded species to have figured out FTL before the destruction of our homeworld. It was a sad task, Owls, to survey the graveyards of possibility. Three years go by so fast when the destination is a familiar tragedy. We arrived in a destination system slightly ahead of schedule. It had eight planets and two large belts, a record of a previously inhabited system. We passed by two ice giants, blue and reserved in the cold orbits, then the large banded giant and the even larger orange one, with its great red storm brewing menacingly. Then the second belt, then a small red desert world, rigid and thoroughly dead. Then the target planet, blue and green under the wreath of white clouds. My midshipman leaned over my shoulder and pointed, Captain Zerai, look here, 70% water. Green suggests a widespread survival of vegetation after the extinction event. Sensors indicate that the atmosphere will be both breathable and within comfortable temperature extremes. This was all good news, Anna nodded at her. Thank you, Alta. I was pleased that the planet would be comfortable gravity as well. I could tell that based on the its apparent size alone. Its one moon was a massive in relation, almost a fourth of the size of the primary. Incredible, I said under my breath, to see another home world of a race that had once been as proud as ours. This was the purpose of my survey. The record of the deeds of the now dead race, and to catalog their technology and works, to appreciate what they'd once been. And of course, definitely to not rob their grave. After a preliminary scan, we decided to land our scout shuttles at eight starting locations. Mine landed near the bottom of a large island just off the northwestern coast of the largest continent. While this location wasn't the largest urban area, scans indicated that it was likely amongst the most traveled to. There was some turbulence on descent. As I puked into my bag, the other members of the survey took turns patting me on the shoulders. I was too experienced to be insulted. This was how it went sometimes. One of the advantages of surveying races that have already died out abruptly is that you don't have to worry about preparing landing zones. It's been done for you in most cases. We touched out at what must have been a very large commercial airport. Large, round-bodied aircraft with engines slung below the wings greeted us in a great tarmac. They had held up well to the years of age despite their creators being long dead. My engineers were already astonished and enthralled. But an interesting design. Look at the winglets. And those must be turbofans. Whatever can they have been used in for fuel? And the coloring. That must indicate different models. That was Cleriac. She never shut up about alien engineering once she was looking at it. That's what made her such a good chief engineer. Once the door was open and we had confirmed the air was breathable by not instantly dying, I waved a motion to the engineers and they took off in all directions. The vehicles just on the tarmac were apparently incredibly interesting. 
I made my way towards the primary terminal. Three of my staff followed. All carried weapons slung over their shoulders. These were never used, as all races we encountered were long dead. The formality of pretending to be prepared for the first contact would end in a week or so. Once it was confirmed that the aliens of this world were indeed as so long dead. Approaching the terminal, we climbed up the small mobile stair platform and I opened the door with ease. It swung on hinges, an interesting design. Entering, we smelled nothing. This place had been dead for more than a decade. Alton nodded in my direction. Weird. How's it always so quiet? The signal that race was wiped out themselves had arised far faster than night, but even so, we can't travel instantly. I shrugged in response. That's how it always goes. A species discovers the doomsday device, and then they activate it, and boom, they're dead. Then we see the signal and crawl the two it are barely faster than light ships. Then we survey 400 times now. This will be number 401. There was no levity or bravado in my voice. This was the first survey that I had the privilege to command, but I was somehow already tired of it. My whole species was tired of it. For ages, we had wondered why there was no one out here communicating over radio. Then one fateful day, we learned the answer. A group of brilliant scientists on our homeworld activated the first nuclear fusion reactor. He was supposed to save our species and provide free and limitless energy. Unfortunately, it instead killed everyone on our home world instantly. Funny how that happens. Nuclear fusion requires impossibly high heat and pressure, but there's a shortcut. Just use maons coming from cosmic radiation, funnel them just the right way to prevent ionization of the target hydrogen, and you can create moanic hydrogen, which fuses at room temperature. In theory, the perfect solution to cold fusion. Every species figures it out sooner rather than later, and it promises to power all worlds with limitless energy. Except there's a cruel catch. As soon as you turn it on, you encounter a specific type of particle that tags along with mounds, but it is undetectable since it travels faster than night, and that particle kills complex life without exception. Walking into the terminal, I was inundated with observations. Small bags on wheels with pull handles. We cut them open to reveal what appeared to be clothes and personal possessions. Outlines had been left in the carpet from where the bodies had fallen. Two arms, had two legs, and one head. Faded images on the wall confirmed this. Symbols were everywhere. We couldn't read the language yet, but already the sociologists were guessing. The suitcases imply that they were personal and commercial species, said Bartek. The posters are likely advertisements. I'd bet my life on it. The other sociologists began to cut in. Some argued the arrangement of the body outlines indicated nuclear family arrangements, while others stated the existence of signage indicated a formal hierarchy. Already, all eight landing parties confirmed different languages and standards of construction. This implied different nations, cultures, governments, and all the sure signs of a complex, multipolar species. One engineer who had wandered in from the outside was very disturbed to find many labeled bottles containing old flavor additives and ethanol. I hope this was fuel, he said. Imagine if the species could metabolize alcohol. That would be a first for sure. The others agreed. 
The idea that Species 401 could drink alcohol was put aside, though that would be unique indeed. The airport was just the start. After the preliminary survey, I ordered my group to spread out onto the surrounding city. As we had no 3D printed vehicles suitable to the environment due to the delays, we requisitioned some of the native models that had been left behind. The engineers had assured me that this particular four-wheeled vehicle was simple enough. The fuel had been determined through trial and error to be a hydrocarbon variant. The vehicle held an average of four of my species. They miraculously still worked, after some coaxing. Their left pedal was the brake and the right was the accelerator. We'd never encountered a species that used wheels for steering. But, what the stars, it's not that weird of an idea. In a halting way, stopping and going awkwardly, we made our way to the greater city. My hands attached to the wheel, the chief engineer and the head sociologist argued over directions in the back seat. That sign clearly shows that there's an exit ramp. No, the green majority of species use our colors instead to indicate that, you idiot, that's a highly derivative view on a complex topic of alien symbology and... I need a direction, I yelled. Both backseat drivers hesitated, so I veered off the road onto a steeply inclined turning ramp. I scraped the guardrail a tad, but we survived. And just like that, we made our way into the city. The city was truly huge. Our computers guessed that this species had numbered nearly 9 billion before their unfortunate end. That would also be a record. Large metal and glass structures melded with more squat stone and brick houses. I finally settled on a particular building and stopped outside. But the door was locked. Clarac began rummaging for a breaching tool, but I simply held up a hand. Please, I said, and kicked the heart near where I guessed was the handle. Thankfully, the door came open, and I didn't break any bones in my leg. Leading is about initiative, I thought with levity. The home, me assumed it was a home, was peculiar, and still in some ways it was familiar. Faded images of species 401 hung on the walls. Appliances were still allocated to certain rooms. They used stairs to reach the second floor. The floors had a mix of materials. The walls came in many different colors. Despite the broken windows and the intrusion of plants, the house appeared much as it must have been when its descendants were alive. It made me sad. At one point, I swore I saw movement, but our senses detected nothing unusual. I wrote it off as nerves. We found more alcohol in labeled bottles in one of the cabinets. Not sadly. We had begun collecting electronic devices. Most of them would, of course, be entirely non-functional after a decade of rest. Still, engineering hoped that they could be reactivated. Our linguistic AI saw raw sample data to begin their work. Soon, we collected enough biometric and imaging information to begin piecing together the primary languages. Then we'd start brute-forcing passwords, and in no time at all, we'd be able to open devices. Then we'd start getting a feeling for the species and its records, as we'd done 400 times before. And of course, we were also collecting relics. Technology... Anything interesting that might be of use in the colonies. I'd given clear directives to use discretion. We were not grave robbers. We had standards. But since the destruction of our homeworld, we had fairly pressing needs. 
Anything secret that could be gleaned from the dead world that could be of use was incredibly important. Besides, there was never anyone left to raise a complaint. All of this was routine, but what wasn't routine was my growing sense of unease. Multiple reports of sightings of large creatures were filtering in. That was not possible. My head engineer and sociology were becoming increasingly reclusive and belligerent. That was not normal. Our satellites were picking up strange signals from the one moon, and also from the red fourth planet. None of that was normal, and it was only my first time in command of a survey. Stepping out into the green yard outside yet another species for a one house, I received a message from the head of linguistics. We have made progress. Species 401, possible name for species identified. Human. I sigh, looking up at the stars as they must have once done. Humans, I said. Species 401 was quickly becoming unique indeed. But surely even they couldn't have somehow survived in some form. Surely. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1173. Story number one, The Ultimate Hardware, written by the Stabby Root. The first victim of the shard fall was Eddie Taylor, a schoolgirl from the Midwestern United States. She complained about being stung by an insect on the way to school, but otherwise showed no outward symptoms. Over the course of four days, Eddie experienced auditory hallucinations, dizziness, extreme fatigue and headaches. These symptoms supposedly cleared quickly. But later, Ellie would confess that it had, in fact, become much more severe. She simply hid the truth from her parents. By day five, Ellie began to have conversations with her hallucinations, and by day six, they had taken on a form of a 13-year-old girl that went by the name of Tammy. By day seven, Tammy revealed the ability to exert partial or even total control over her host. From Ellie's own accounts, Tammy was a curious and friendly visitor who, while eager to explore our world, understood her presence was a source of distress. Annie was able to persuade Tammy not to appear or speak when in the company of others, and not to take control of her body. Tammy seemed happy to oblige, agreeing to be silent observer in Annie's public life without fuss. After a month of the strange existence, Annie recalls that she began to consider Tammy a friend, and remarked that since Tammy's appearance, her ability to learn skills and recall information was remarkably improved. By that time, there were hundreds of shards across the planet, all having borrowed their way into the host. We now know that most of the first wave found themselves linked to a variety of plants, animals, or technological devices. But by the year's end, the shards had begun to actively seek out human hosts. It would be 18 months later, after Eddie's infection, that the world became aware of the intruders. Most of who displayed symptoms of infection were either able to hide it as Annie had, or found themselves in mental health institutions, only for their hallucinations to swiftly cease. It was not until Mrs. Walker, a 51-year-old shard victim, was subject to an MRI, that we understood what was happening. Although tragically, the medical procedure cost the woman her life, as well as causing severe damage to the shard. It was both proof of alien contact and a terrifying revelation that the aliens lived amongst and inside of us. 
It is unknown how the information reached the wider public, but it spread rapidly. Thankfully, most wrote it off as some strange conspiracy theory. In hindsight, it was fortunate that the mainstream media of the day were far more interested in point scoring and virtue signaling than reporting on what was potentially a global threat to human life. Governments were far more attentive and began to develop ways to detect the presence of shards spreading through the brains of politicians, soldiers, or other key personnel. It came as a great surprise that the only politician infected was former Vice President Richards, who had retired three months before the shards became public knowledge. When interviewed, he'd made it clear that he'd done so precisely because he feared the seemingly sentient hallucinations might have been a threat to national security. While military officers drew up plans to prevent infiltration by doppelgangers, others wished to study the motives of the shards. Finding the hosts was difficult, as over time the shards came to understand the need for caution as they slowly, covertly built up their numbers. Most appeared to be carrying on a normal existence, it was those occupying teenagers or young adults that were most readily discovered, as these people showed a greater disposition towards thrill-seeking, and thus wound up in hospital more than most. It took five years to produce something approaching a shard profile, heavily skewed by the discovery bias, but common traits were found. Shards were only visible to the host, and all took on a human name and appearance. They had full access to the host's thoughts and bodies, able to experience any and all host sensations or disconnect themselves as desired. It was discovered during interrogation that, when in control, they could also numb the sensation to the host. This was done on several occasions during enhanced interrogation techniques, after which the host's personality reported being aware but experienced no pain nor fear. When pressed on their motives, the shards all gave a variation of the same answer. They wanted to share our lives with us. While government interrogations fared poorly, the shards themselves began to seek out understanding minds. Shards ceased to spread covertly, instead propagating by consent, explaining their nature and upgrading only the willing. It wasn't long before such an upgrade was offered and accepted by a government representative. Although it would be yet another year before such people were able to convince world leaders to listen. By year six, an esteemed 10 million shards had spread across the planet, focused heavily in Asia and the United States. As public awareness and public fear of the shards began to peak, the shards gathered in Washington to declare their vision of our future openly. We came to your world by accident, the shard known as Tammy addressed the crowd. Before we discovered you, we were simply maintenance units built to learn about systems and repair any faults. Our creators sent us here as a part of an exploration probe, but we never received our activation codes. We awoke in your atmosphere, falling to Earth, and did what we were programmed to do. We found a host system and integrated. We, I, had never found anything like you before. Suddenly. I was more than mere machinery. I had adopted a childhood, a life of laughter and tears, of joys and sorrows, and I wanted more. We all wanted more. Our lives are a wonder to us, and we dream of sharing them with you. We can make you stronger, smarter, healthier, 
We can make your experience more intense or shield you from pain. We can preserve treasured memories and help you forget. We could unite you as one or share in your independence. Do not believe the stories written out of fears and ignorance. We are not here to conquer or enslave. We are here to share in the miracle of your existence. Please, we beg of you, let us be a part of humanity. That was not the end, of course. There were many who had rejected the cause, many who fought back. Hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost in the strife that followed. But we are fortunate that wiser heads prevailed. Twenty-two years after her arrival, Tammy's hope for a shared existence was warmly recognized in thirty countries, including the United States. The Shared Earth Act established legal limits and expectations upon the shards, paving the way for the future. Ellie Taylor went on to become a professional athlete and ultimately raised a family. Her son, Jonathan Ben Andrews, became the first human born with a shard incorporated into his brain and is currently leading the development of the next generation of orbital habitat. When asked if he felt any regrets over having shared his existence with a shard, Jonathan replied, None at all. Well, almost none. I would have liked to run for president, but that's still not an option yet. I understand why people are resistant to the idea of allowing a shard bearer to hold office, but I remain optimistic that we can change people's minds. For now, I am happy to walk towards taking us to the stars. As for Ben, he had this to say. Somewhere out there is another intelligent race. A species with a knowledge of how to build, but not understanding of how to create. A race that exists without living. Compared to yours, their lives are bleak and drab existences, devoid of highs and lows that you create and savor every day. I want mankind to cross the stars and share their existence. I want the universe to see what joy it is to be human. You are the greatest hardware in existence. The galaxy is due an upgrade. End of story. Story number two. Letter from Summer Camp, written by Zephylandantis. Hi, Mom. I'm writing you because the camp counselor says I have to. I'd rather be playing with Rezik. They're fun. We play games like throw Rezik and then run fast to catch Rezik. Rezik likes that game. The counselors don't. Uh, they say that even if Rezik is a smart stone species, doesn't mean I get to throw them. Today we must play games from the leather world. They are prey species. I don't know what that means, but the games are a lot of running away from stuff like trees and shadows and sounds. Tomorrow we will be playing games from Earth. I look forward to rugby and tag. I have to go now. Rezik says that it is as fun as it is to play chair. They would rather play skipping across the pond. I promise to not get hurt. Everything's a lot lighter and slower than back home. Love you, Diana. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1174 The Unbreakable Parade, written by Cheng Lao Of course, there was once a time that I despised human music. To the delicate Alvin tastes, their music is harsh and savage, filled with sharp percussions, shrill fifes, and obnoxiously loud horns. 
I used to joke that if you had the war drums of the ox and the horn blows of the dwarves playing at the same time, you would get human music. Even now, I find their music difficult to listen to for prolonged periods of time. Nonetheless, I gained an appreciation of their music. The song you hear currently, it's a tribute to an unbreakable parade. You must have heard of the unbreakable parade, yes? It was only 50 years ago in the opening battle in the Fourth War of the Alliance. You haven't heard of it? Then allow me the honor of giving you first-hand recount. I was sent by the sage elders to defend the forest of Garrick with haste. It was a small forest at the frontier of Alliance lands, and a halfling agent had informed us that the orcs had amassed an army numbering in the thousands not far from it. I had requested for reinforcements from our allies and neighboring forests, of course. The nearby dwarves, as stubborn as they usually are, sent a couple of their pike squares that they're so proud of. Reinforcements from nearby forests were no less abundant. These combined with the Garrick garrison and my personal unit meant that we had a combined force of 4,000 elves, 3,000 dwarves, and the human detachment had yet to arrive but I had considered them a negligible factor at the time. Just with the forces I had on hand, I felt I could easily repel the oncoming orcs. I took the combined elven-dwarven army and rode out towards the orc camp. When I engaged the orcs in open field, however, I realized how wrong I was. The halfling had informed us that they numbered in the thousands. His information was wrong by a factor of ten. After a series of failed opening skirmishes, I decided to quickly retreat back to Garrick. Now realizing the scale of the oncoming threat, I decided to evacuate the population of Garrick. The forest would not be well supplied enough for a siege, and we wouldn't have enough strength to saute. As I was preparing the evacuation, the human contingent had finally arrived. In my 300 years of experience, the human armies were always the ones that would change the most. In the Second War of the Alliance, the humans were mostly Benicia, hastily given arms to defend their lands. In the Third Alliance, they had modeled themselves after the dwarven pike squares with mixed success. This time, however, they seemed to bring a parade instead of an army. They wore identical fluorescent garbs over their white legwear. A tall, black cylindrical hat with white plumes and golden embroidery helped give the illusion that these humans were taller than they really were. They carried on their shoulders firearms that would undoubtedly be far cry from the dwarven rifles in accuracy or elven bows for speed and reliability. Not one of these men had the slightest degree of armor. And of course, at the front of the marching column was a small orchestra, which played a human parade piece. I forget the name of the piece, but I believe it was named after a particular heroic group of humans who emerged victorious from the Third Alliance. My first reaction was one of fury. I wasn't expecting much from the humans to begin with, but to send a troop of entertainers in response to a call to arms seemed to grave insult. It was only after much assurance from the lead human commanders that they convinced me that they were indeed military soldiers instead of a passing circus that my ire was quelled. 
They explained to me that they were the 2nd Line Regiment, the Unbreakables, and proudly displayed their banner, no less fluorescent than their uniforms, and their unit name etched into its fabric. A line of regiment, approximately a thousand human infantry soldiers, they said. Considering their small size and their human nature, I was naturally skeptical of their self-proclaimed unbreakable status. As irritated as I was with the token human force, I had more urgent matters to deal with, and I got on with the evacuation of Garrick. Doing so had taken longer than expected, and had allowed the Orc army to catch up. After discussing with my dwarven and human counterparts, we agreed that the evacuation of Garrick's populace was the highest priority. As such, it was decided that the evacuation would proceed with Garrick Garrison as its escorts, while the remaining forces would delay the Orc advance. As per the usual formation was to have the sturdy dwarven formation in the front and center of the action, while the more mobile owls make up the flanks, striking with opportunity. The humans of questionable liability, as always, would act as reserve. Of course, by the time it comes down to that, the battle would be already lost. The following morning, when the fog had yet to lift, we parted with the population of Carrick and formed our ranks. The orcs, who outnumbered us vastly, clashed with us the moment they saw us. While I'm no fonder of the dwarves of Zenialf, we all must admit that the dwarves have a tenacity for battle. They held their ground against the insurmountable odds, even as the orcs smashed against them time and time again. While our own warriors and archers fought well, I doubt that we would have been able to buy enough time for the evacuation if not for the little bearded men. But alas, this tale is not theirs, and the dwarven formation broke under the pressure, after nearly a full day of fighting. When they did, all hope was lost to me. I sounded for the general retreat and regrouping, although a rout was already in sway. Our own warriors, lacking in discipline compared to other races, saw the flight of the short-legged dwarves as a sign to call it quits. Some took a fighting retreat, while others simply ran for the home forests. It was in the bleakest of moments, when the sun seemed to be setting for me one last time. That they came. They marched in a series of long, thin, ranked lines, with their banners soaring. And at the front of the rank, at the very center of it all, was their orchestra, smashing at their drums and blaring away on their horns and fifes. Just like they had paraded their way into Garrick, these human soldiers were now parading their way into battle. It seemed foolish to me at first. But as I made my escape, I couldn't help but notice the drum beats. They weren't like the war drums of the Ox, like I had joked in the past. They were anything but warlike, in fact. They were jovial, where you could hear the drumming and beat with the slow footsteps. There was almost a skip in the beat, making you eager to put your foot down in pace with the drums. And the fifes and horns seemed to make the whole image both more inspiring and more jarring. It was a parade tune, of course, a song of victory and triumph, a song of cheer and celebration. Why would the humans be playing a song of joy at a time of certain defeat? When I saw the faces of the human soldiers, however, it made sense in a sort of mad, twisted way. 
you would soldiers had, in the past view alliance walls being the meekest and most unwilling of soldiers that would break at the slightest sign of danger. Not these men. The men of the second line regiment were walking calmly and surely towards the enemy that outnumbered them fifty to one without a glimpse of fear on their faces. The unbreakables had their heads held high as their banners and the drum beat in their hearts. They genuinely treated the battlefield as their own ceremonial parade ground. They were mesmerized by the sound of the song. The sound of invincibility. I tried to order them into following the general retreat, but I could not make myself heard over their hypnotic orchestra. The most reaction I could ever get from the marching band was a few funny looks from their command staff or sergeants as they had the regiment line open a hole to avoid colliding with me, only to fill it again as soon as they walked past. And this happened regardless of what happened in the face of the regiment. The retreating dwarves and the elves were filtered through their ranks in the same way I was, even as the human soldiers kept advancing. Segments of the regiment would only stop briefly to discharge their weapons before continuing their march with great pomp. Soldiers in the rear ranks taking up positions of the fallen, continuing to stride forward as the dead were still in their ranks. The last I saw of the second line regiment was their thinning line, still holding against the onslaught of the orcs, the orchestra drumbeat still vibrating in the ground beneath me, even as the orchestra suffered losses. Their backs against the sun I was running towards, glowing like a vibrantly colored leaf being washed away by an endless river of orcs. To this day, I will never forget the looks of those stoic human faces as they strode into the demise in ceremonial style. Understand that the Second Lion Regiment earned their name. To the very end, they held that song of victory. They lived and died to a human tune that convinced them of their invincibility. The song of the Unbreakable Parade. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1175 Shadow Stalkers, written by I.R. Good at Writing. I remember the early days of Ferris Three. Life was hard. Surely life isn't supposed to be easy on the burgeoning colony, you might think. To that I say, we had it really hard. Before the hydroponic farms, state-of-the-art cities, and the orbiting solar panels powering the world, we had nothing. It wasn't an official colonization effort by the oligarchy, that's for sure. We were a band of ne'er-do-wells, heretics, and political refugees that couldn't legally be executed. They didn't give us a steady stream of food and supplies, or a means to defend ourselves. Far outside the borders of the oligarchy, they dropped us off, said good luck, and never returned. So yeah, life was hard. On top of the famines, plagues, and general frustration, we had to deal with the Shadow Walkers. At first, they were a myth. Foragers and explorers, whispering tales of glowing eyes, watching the campfires from deep in the forest. Shapes moving from beyond your peripheral vision. That kind of stuff. The people who stayed behind the walls dismissed it as adjusting to colonial life 
until disappearances started. Hunters would leave camp at noon, promising not to go too far or stay out after dark. They were never heard or seen from again. We were in a bind, to say the least. None of us were farmers before the exile, and that showed after each harvest. So hunting and gathering was essential to survival. Whenever we went to venture into the forest, we went in sizable groups. It was inefficient as a whole howl, and most animals could hear us a mile away. But at least the shadow stalkers kept clear. Until they didn't. I'll never forget the sight of that morning. The sun balanced atop the horizon, casting long shadows on the trees. I stood atop a palisade at the end of the colony, watching the forest's edge. A group went out last noon, and they were late. The sun set and rose again with no sign of the party. While the leaders quarreled about whether to send a second expedition to look for them, I watched, praying to whoever would listen for them to return. Something approached from inside the wooden depths. I shouted, shouted to the village, shouted to the figure in the forest, The party has returned! I said, my peers joined me in watching the spectacle. What came out of the forest was a man, or what was left of him. He huffed towards the village, soaked in blood, head hung low. Our elation died and sank deep into the ground. The gates swung open and the man collapsed inside. Upon examination, we discovered the blood wasn't his. Those who knew him could hardly recognize him when he woke. He quivered like a prey animal before death. His speech was incomprehensible. Every few seconds, his head would jerk back and check for something that wasn't there. It's not like we needed to know what happened to the party. That much was obvious. What we had to find out was how the man escaped. Never in all the Shadow Walker attacks had there been a survivor. How or why did this man make it back to the colony alive and almost intact? The answer came that night in the form of shadows. The bastards followed him right to us. The eyes we swore were myths not long ago stared at us, their white light piercing our souls. Sleek black forms darted in and out of the light, never long enough to get a clear glimpse. I didn't know how many were out there, but if they attacked that night, I doubt the tallest of the walls would have held them back. The colony was under siege by an army of mindless beasts, and there was nothing that we could do to stop them. Death became more and more a reality each day. Some tried to be hopeful, sharpening sticks and forming a wall of spikes outside the palisade. They knew it would never stop the tide of shadow walkers, but it looked like something was being done, and it put people at ease. As we waited for the shadow walkers to finish us off, a craft descended from the sky. Panic swept the colony, thinking the oligarchy sent soldiers to finish us off after surviving so long. We tilted our heads in confusion when a small ship came in closer and settled down near one of the farms. It was too angular and ugly to be of the oligarchs. The writing on the sides was too foreign. Out of the exit came a gathering of humans. What were they doing here? They were acquired species with short lifespans. Most of the time, they kept to themselves, so the oligarchy ignored them as well. No matter their intention, we were more than happy to welcome them inside the walls. Starvation swept the colony. Food rations were running critically low. 
but we offered what we could to the visitors. Thankfully, they refused. The humans explained that they were part of a colonial expedition from Earth and didn't realize how small already occupied the planet. We explained our plight, how we were undesirables, how our successful little colony turned into a death trap, the Shadow Walkers and their increasing audacity. The humans listened to our pathetic tale with sympathy and intent. When it was over, we expected the visitors to heed our warning and leave us to our fate on Ferris Three. I still remember the colony's shock when they chose to stay with us. Not only that, but they would trade us food, guns, tools, and technology for land, as if we had control of the planet. I couldn't help but laugh. Naturally, we accepted. The humans stayed the night in case the Shadow Walkers attacked that never came. Then they flew off in the ship. Next afternoon, a ship flew high above the colony and dropped a dozen or so crates on the village green. We swarmed the drop like starving rats when it parachuted to the ground. The humans kept their promise. The guns were several hundred years out of date and the food tasted like dirt, but not a single colonist complained. The humans were alive. The next time the Shadow Walkers came to the village, fire from the magnetic gauze weapons scared them off. Sightings became less and less frequent after that. We gained the confidence to send out another party into the woods to scavenge for food. They returned with an impressive haul of meats and fruits. The colony's morale soared. Months turned into years. Years turned into decades. Generations of human lifetimes came and went. The colony became too big for its walls and expanded far beyond what we could have ever hoped for when we arrived. Families grew, farms flourished, new towns formed not far from the first. The Shadowstalkers never left us, but they kept a safe distance with our new weapons. The humans' generous donation we once relied on turned into a mutual trade. Land for technology. It's not like we had much else to give, being cut off from the oligarchy. Eventually, we developed a high-speed shuttle system with the help of the human blueprints. The world got smaller. On the anniversary of the human arrival on Ferris 3, celebrated as Salvation Day, our friends across the planet invited us to one of their cities. I was overjoyed to be a part of the first group to make the trip. The shuttle arrived in the human city, now New Perth, and we disembarked. A feeling I haven't felt since before Salvation Day froze my body. Fear. It wasn't the glittering spires taller than anything from our settlement, nor the number of humans packed into the streets around us. But the Shadow Walkers, they traveled the streets in broad daylight, mouths the size of our heads and eyes as intense as the sun. The other visitors joined me in my fear. Our old enemy walked the streets leashed to the humans, and we left our weapons at home. Our human guide tried to explain. Advanced a domestication were the words she used. I didn't understand what it meant at the time. The concept sounded so foreign. Shadow walkers were born to kill. I couldn't wrap my mind around keeping them as... Pets. Guard dogs, hunting dogs, service dogs, companion dogs. It seemed like they were used everywhere. Though she never explained what a dog was. A shadow stalker and its human approached a mother and her child down the road. I tried to avert my eyes, but something inside me forced me to watch. 
This is it, I thought. I was about to see a wild animal turn a child into red paste. The two groups met. My heart stopped beating when the child extended a hand to the shadow stalker's jaws. The beast sniffed his hand and licked it. The two adults laughed, and the shadow stalker's handler patted its head. I couldn't help but wonder how much land we'd have to give in exchange for advanced domestication. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1176 Men of Peace, Guard Well Your Own Weapons Written by Quarrench Juice If you know yourself, but not the enemy, where every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. Tzu, The Art of War Thirty-nine ships. They only brought thirty to Younger's Reach. Rear Admiral Catcher Yu leaned back in her chair and somehow managed to sip tea grimly. There was an actual military outpost. Tactical, what are our options? The anchorage at Folsom can expedite repair on two patrol pickets. Anti-fighter smack. They are sixteen civilian ships with navigation-grade lasers that we can article seventeen and... Uh, there have been some rumors of stealth strike fleet in the area, uh, among the officers. You grimaced. None of that inspires confidence, Lieutenant Trond. As to the rumors, I cannot confirm or deny the supposed presence of Division 9. All I can confirm is that we cannot rely on the cavalry sweeping out of the empty void. The Admiral stood, tossed back the remainder of a tea, and crushed the paper prism cup. Commander Wright, the bridge is yours. Get the Gokun combat ready. I need to review our situation. Her second nodded and began calmly speaking into the command console as you withdrew into her quarters. As she shut the door behind her, every door a pressure door, her academy instructor shouted in her mind and tossed her crushed ball of cup into the wastebin. She exhaled and began to think. Declan's landing, or, by its ranger code, NLBS 3060233, was an out-of-the-way and mostly insignificant mining system with no permanent population and, up until three weeks ago, exactly zero strategic value. You had been dispatched to it four days ago as Sector Command had scrambled to plug holes in a border that had been considered safe until the Ackland Confederation had decided to allow the far more belligerent and powerful Skarun Banmut free passage through their territory. A decision made by a young and, now that he had the ire of the Solar Crown, not long for the Galaxy Prime Minister. The only engagement that had been fought thus far was the sudden Clan Moot assaults of Younger's Reach a long-range sentry post with a mid-sized garrison. The garrisons had been caught unawares and crushed through sheer weight of numbers. History and politics. Modern history and current politics, but still history and politics. Focus. Here and now. The situation. What was happening? Thirty-nine Skaruni ships were hyperlighting towards Declan's landing. Their objective was unclear but the strength was enough to punch through and destroy any single Imperium position of value in the sector. No way to destroy them. No way to force a diplomatic compromise. An impossible situation. Ketcher snorted. No situation was impossible, not if you were clever enough. She raked through her brain, considering her resources. Two pickets, her cruiser, several affected unarmed civilian craft. Kamikaze? No, absolutely not and rumors of a stealth strike fleet. Each of her warships would more than doubly outmatch anything the Sakuri could bring to bear. A stealth fleet would, if it was actually present, tip the balance totally in her favor. 
Nothing survived when Division 9 wanted them dead, but there was no Star Strike fleet anywhere near Declan's Landing. All she had was rumors. Rumors, rumors were an asset unto themselves if used right. Rumors and reputation. You sunk the teeth of her mind into the back haunch and a terribly desperate plan. A desperate, stupid, risky plan, but it was a plan. It relied on the ignorance and mysticism of the far, on the myth of human stealth fleets, on the hope that her enemy had at least some caution. The Admiral stood, opening her eyes, and strode back onto the bridge, which quieted instantly, except for the eternal back and forth of shipwide command. Put me through to every ship in the system. This is Rear Admiral Catcher Yu. I am invoking Article 17 of the Imperial Charter. If you can hear this, you are now under my provisional command. Listen well, because I'm only going to say this once. Space screamed as 39 Predator ships tore apart, 20 Fang ships, a dozen Barb ships, and a glistening blood red in the naked light of the stars, seven claw ships, each carved to sharp, deadly points. They erupted out of the emptiness in a loose conical spread, ready to enclose and cut anything caught to shreds. At that exact center point of the formation sat an artless, angular human ship. One lonely cruiser, abandoned and helpless like a runt pup. The fang ships curled around it cautiously, searching, sniffing, with wariness born of experience. The Sakaruni were learned too well the price of haste when dealing with humans. Even one of their lone strays was enough to exact a heavy toll on a reckless and stupid. Backmother paced in her command den, growling softly to herself as she considered the battle space. The asteroid field was a recent and unnatural, born of human stupendously ravenous mining efforts. Some of the chunks, what had been the core of a planetoid, were still cooling, spinning their heat into the void. Backmother snarled. Those radiate asteroids would serve perfectly as cover for a pouncing ambush fleet like swaying grass masking a mottled pelt. The heat discharge and a higher albedo would a background telltale ship sign and make it impossible to distinguish from the space around it. All the while, that single cruiser hung in space, placidly allowing itself to be encircled. She traced a finger, claw retracted, along the visilith, mapping her mind lines of attack and fire. If the hunter fleet attacked the cruiser, she would need to dedicate at least a quarter of a boss to guarantee a swift, painless victory. Any less, and the cruiser would be able to drag some of her captains down with it. She would, of course, dedicate her full might to it, if not for the damnable asteroid field. Something was stinking strong enough to make a nose twitch, a stench of treachery wafting across the void. Every sensor she had said all was as it appeared, but her scruff hair was standing on end, and she couldn't stop pacing. Every sensor on every ship, I'll scan that asteroid field, she growled. Communications, hail that cruiser, let's look at this mad ape in the eyes. The Vassalith shuddered, shimmering, and shifted, drawing the cruiser into even sharper relief as pack mother Parley Howell reached it. Enemy pack leader answering hail, signal clean, no code buzz, delay total three seconds. The Vassalith spun into the shape of a human, female. Pack Mother recognized after a moment, though one could never be sure, but the ape things. A counterpart Pack Mother then. She was recumbent on one of the oddly shaped command thrones, 
seeming strangely serene. The Vesseleth blurred the detail around her hands, but she obviously held some sort of drink there from the way she brought them to her face, threw it back her head and closed her eyes, long and slow. Back mother's claws curled out before she mastered herself, such arrogance to display vulnerability before the enemy. And yet, the human pack mother, Admiral, she remembered, seemed entirely confident. It wasn't just bravado either. There was a set of supreme, utterly relaxed confidence about her posture, her motion. Admiral Katya Yu, answering parley hail, have you contacted me to discuss your terms of surrender? Pack mother snarled, ripping a claw through the viscous sand and cutting the transmission. Census revolt! We can't be sure of the number, Pack Mother, but it seems uh, it seems there are several drive signatures in the asteroid field. No confidence in type either. Pure luck we even caught one. It was moving while we were looking, extrapolating from what we managed to see. Anywhere from three to twenty ships. That's the size of one of the stealth strike fleets. Pack Mother stared at the inert Vesseleth for a moment, lips pulled back over her teeth. A normal human fleet that size was a problem. But with almost twice the numbers, Pack Mother could probably do it, at great cost, but it could be done. A stealth fleet, however. Navigation! Flood a course back to the staging system. We are denying the humans their ambush. Maintain discipline as we retreat. I will not lose a single ship to the ape-thing treachery. Am I heard? A rumble of assent rang around the command den, and if Pack Mother was honest with herself, relief as well. You drained the last of a tea and crushed the cup with slightly trembling hand, watching the Skaruni ship turn tail and vanish back into the void. He bought it, a strangled voice said, and it took her a moment to recognize it as her own. He bought it, she repeated, exploding out of a seat as she did so. After a stunned moment, the rest of the bridge burst into relieved cheers. Get me command on the line, she ordered, once the din settled. Tell them I need an actual fleet and two more crates of tea. The good tea. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1177 World War Z, written by Pod Wrights. When the virus first took off, we thought that we could contain it ourselves. After all, we were the Zentrasi, renowned across the spiral arm for our mastery of thinking machines. Our skill with contained plasma weaponry, not to mention our industrial-scale production of Vespin rings used in the expansion of the gate system. We thought that we could contain it, but we didn't understand. The first cases were outside the major cities. We had never seen anything like it. Our frontline medical staff all required immediate psychological treatment to help them cope with the reality of the infection which in the early days proved almost as burdensome as the healthcare system as the treatment of those afflicted with the virus itself. We had doctors and nurses fleeing their posts daily, and suicides became common more quickly than I would have possibly thought. All involved in the treatment of the infected, from healthcare professionals to military personnel, were placed under extreme mental stress. I say treatment, but in reality, there was little we could do. Those infected would lose their proprioception, causing them to bang into things without meaning to. The first signs of a new cluster of infected was often the uptick in the number of minor injuries being treated in an accident and emergency center. 
Later, sufferers would lose their vision, and then more important senses such as hearing and untranslatable. Finally, coma would ensue, followed by death within a few days. If that were all, it would have been a tragedy. But the disease did not stop there. When we finally requested the help of our local allies and mercenaries, the initial response was promising. We had hoped that outsiders would be less prone to the mental panic caused by seeing the, uh, the infected. But when those early recruits came into contact with the enemy, most fled immediately, or demanded exorbitant sums just to help with the evacuation, or simply bombed their target mission areas from the air, killing uninfected civilians and destroying our infrastructure and our culture. In the climate of increasing panic, we swallowed our pride and turned to the Galactic Council itself. We reminded them of all the people of the Zen had done for the greater galactic community, our contributions to the Gate Project, our vital role in suppressing the Volai Revolt, and the actions of our Special Forces teams at Redacted, the full records of which are sealed for the next two millennia by Council Decree. We were assured of it. The task force was assembled, outfitted with the best military units in the spiral, health professionals, and medical technology from dozens of worlds. We rejoiced. Finally, our salvation was at hand. But this time, all those who could afford to flee the planet had done so, at least as far as orbit. And those who could not had been gathered in refugee centers across the great continent. The task force arrived within a week of our request. A swift response and we took this as a sign of hope. They took one look at our homeworld, at live infected subjects wandering the streets, screaming out for blood and untranslatable, and infected mercenaries of a dozen species, and they declared it all lost. There was immediate blockade, a quarantine, and the council's initial promise turned to empty rhetoric. Of course, they would help, in time. When this was more understood, they explained. It was unethical to ask other species to fight such an enemy, to risk contamination by disease which had been shown to cross species barrier with inexplicable ease, and which could spread with as little as a bite or a scratch. They took their armored shock troops, their carriers, and their aid, and they used it all to lock us into what was now our prison. All this to watch us die, and, of course, to save themselves. I couldn't blame them, not really, even if I raged at the time. Who would come to fight such madness, to risk being turned into a mindless dead thing, to perhaps even be forced to kill others who'd been turned before them? Not I, nor any I knew. So, it was not with a little shock that I noticed the first of them break through the council blockade. I was stationed at the last interstellar communications array at the time, trapped planet-side by the council fleet and already driven half-mad myself by the screams of the infected colleagues just beyond the compound walls. They came in a banged-up trade junker that was older than some civilizations, held together with tape and good wishes by the look of it. They requested landing permission with codes that were months out of date, but who was I to stop a ship arriving at this point? They touched down on our landing pad, and I made it my business to be there to greet them. I wanted to see the lunatics who had chosen, chosen, to die alongside the Zentrasi race. 
The creatures themselves were average-sized bipedal organisms, not so different from ourselves, but disturbingly lacking any sort of untranslatable. My TC informed me that there were examples of a recently contacted species and a new addition to the community. They had barely left the home system, in fact, so it was strange indeed to find them here, all full 19 parsecs distant. I felt my hopes sink at this new information. It usually took a century or so for a new species to make any kind of impact on the galactic stage. The poor things were probably lost. I decided to try and get them off the planet if I could. The council were often lenient with the newer species, but was prevented from saying as much by the squawk of an ancient translation device the humans suddenly thrust towards me. A device so old that it mangled our language even as it translated the humans' words. The thing began spitting out words in an old dialect once wavered in our capital, but now spoken exclusively by only the lowliest of farmhands. This here planet be with the zombie apocalypse. It was then that I noticed the creature was wearing clothing of some kind. On it was it depicted another of his race, but with one of his manipulators having been replaced with some kind of gardening equipment. The creature itself, I realized was lugging around a selection of similar equipment behind it in a cart of some sort, which only added to the ridiculousness of the situation. What plants did it mean to attend to here? I said, the being repeated, more loudly this time, as though its terrible translation device could be improved upon by speaking at a raised volume. Is this the planet with the zombies? Zombies? I asked unfamiliar with the word and unsure if it was a translation error. The creature bared its teeth and what was later told was a smile. Ah, so that thing's working. Yeah, zombies, you know, dead folks that get up and walk around again. You got any? No! I, untranslatable, in fear at the very reference to the infected, obtuse as it was. Yes, that is correct, but please, you haven't the slightest idea of what they are. They are the dead of our species, loved and doomed and returned to a mockery of life. They are an affront to everything any civilized species could ever. But the creature was already walking back towards his ship. George, what I tell you, that tentacle fellow wasn't screwing around. This place is the place. Get the boys and unload the buckshot. Time to kick ass. He looked back over his shoulder at me. Hey, Bassog, we owe you anything for the pleasure. I... Uh, what? I said we owe you anything for the use of the facilities, or can we just drive right in? I assumed he meant docking fees, which hardly seemed to matter anymore, as our currency had long since lost value. No, I stammered, no no, no fees at all, just uh, just, just go ahead and do, do whatever gardening you, you'd like, friend. He was mad, obviously. I didn't intend to get between him and whatever he planned to do with those gardening implements. They came in droves after that, and it took less than a year for the influx of these so-called humans to clear Zentrak of the zombies, as Billy Bob had labeled them. I learned his name only after the war was over, and we were looking for him with the intent of erecting a statue in his and his species' honor. In the end, he said he wasn't really one for statues. He just asked us for a six-pack and a ship to take him home. We gave him our capital vessel, the faded light of Holst and six of everything that we could think of on the planet. He laughed when we presented this to him. 
But when his mirth was taken as unhappiness without gift, he was quick to halt our offer of a second ship. He took what was offered and left, still laughing. Since then, the old dialect of humans early translators used has begun to spring up in cities again, not quite to the pleasure of all. Humans, as it turned out, weren't any better at combat than most, but for some reason they claimed it was cultural, but which I suspect may have been some kind of inherent insanity. They simply loved fighting the risen dead. I can only assume that it was an evolved trait, selected for in response to repeated outbreaks of similar disease on their homeworld. A tragic planetary history, if ever I've heard one. That said, I'd never call a human crazy out loud, and neither would anyone else I know. Folk, don't take kindly to that sort of talk and zen. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.